Um, so we are in our week two of our series um, called The Extravagance. And the reason we're doing this series so close to Christmas is because Scripture is actually really clear that Jesus is this amazing gift to all of us. Jesus came to earth not to like collect what he was owed from his slaves. He came to earth to give his life to his children so that they could be reunited again. And so when we look at his birth and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, it is this beautiful reflection of the extravagance of God. And those who are following Jesus are called to exhibit the same type of extravagant generosity in their own lives. And this extravagant generosity is not just a momentary act, like I did this one thing this one time and now I'm done, I'm generous. No, a gener extravagant generosity is sort of this regular participation. It's this habit of living a life that, where you're generous with your time and your resources and your finances and your abilities and your talents and your availability, that, that you just have sort of this open-handed way of living out your life. And what we see throughout scripture and throughout, generos uh, throughout church history is that when people step up to be extravagantly generous, it is like oxygen that fans the flame of God's mission in this world to redeem and restore the entire world. It's, it's this sort of fuel on the fire where it just goes because it changes everything. God uses generous people to change the world. Now, last week, we sort of kicked off this series by imagining a story about going to a party and that when you step into the party, there is lots of food and there is lots of drink. There is abundance for all, and it's hosted by this generous host who has just invited everyone to participate. But while you're at the party, you start to notice that there are these people that begin hoarding the food, that they take all the appetizers into the den and they stand guard and they're like, this is for us and no one Else, that all of a sudden they start acting in this really, really strange way. And we use this illustration to describe what our world is like. That God actually set up and created this world as this abundant party. That there was enough for everyone. And he was the generous host. But that there was this lie that was planted in our world that, that we as humanity bought into. That there wasn't enough that God was holding out on us, that he was saving the best for himself, and that the only way to really get what we needed was to take it, and to take it, and take it, and take it. And so it wound up sort of leading to these ways that we now live in this scarcity mindset in this world that we live in. The party, the abundant party now became this, this chaotic mess where we had to fight and struggle to get ahead. But when Jesus enters the world, we see that he begins living in this way that actually doesn't reflect that there isn't enough. It doesn't reflect scarcity. Instead, he like steps into the world and is like, there's enough for all. Here's for you and here's for you. He's like the Oprah of the New Testament. Car for you and bread for you and fish for you and healing for you. Everyone gets healed, right? And so Jesus lives with this this abundance mindset, and he understands the world as this place of abundance, and God as this generous host. And each time that Jesus trusts in the abundance of this world and the generosity of God as its host, it results in the supernatural unleashing of God's extravagant and miraculous activity. And then God invites those who follow him to do the same. 
And so as followers of Christ, we become generous outwardly because we have been changed inwardly by this authentic relationship with this extravagantly generous God who willingly gave his life for us. Now, my hope is that after um, this past Sunday, you like left this place and you were like, man, I see the world as an abundant place and this is so great and everything's going to be fine and you have this abundant mindset. And if that's true, my hope is that you were kind of able to relax and you were able to relax in the amazing generosity of our extravagant God. And that in turn, you were able to be generous. Like that's what I'm hoping happened when you left here. But I suspect that at some point during the week, all of a sudden, all of that came crashing down as worry and anxiety began to take over and enter your thoughts. And maybe you were lucky and it lasted until Wednesday. Or maybe you got out of the parking lot and all of a sudden it all started to crash in on you. Now we live in a culture that is consumed by worry and anxiety. We worry about all kinds of different things. We worry about our kids. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our future. We worry about the uh, house. We worry about the next project at work or at school. In fact, me saying that triggers all these thoughts to you of like, yes, that is a project and I haven't done it yet. And we certainly worry about money. We worry if there's going to be enough or how can we get more? Or how do we protect what it is that we have? See, we live and worry is not just the byproduct of a rushed and crazy society. Like oftentimes we think that worry is just a result of living in the East Coast or living in the 21st century or living while there's all these technological advances and it creates all these worries and these pressures to like keep up. But the reality is that simply isn't true. Worry is actually a part of the human condition. And it doesn't matter what time or place or generation you lived in, like worry has always been a part of our experience as humans. In fact, in the beginning of scripture, when sin and brokenness first enter into the world, we are told that one of the consequences of sin was that worry would be a part of our lives. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, um, part of the description of what now happens because of our distrust of God, it says that by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Now, I know that that doesn't initially sound like worry, but that whole word, the sweat of your brow, it's this Near Eastern imagery for worry, sweat, right? We use it when we say things like, oh, don't sweat it. Or I didn't sweat it. It was fine. I'm not sweating it. It's okay. It's the same sort of idea. It's the same sort of thing. And so what scripture is trying to make clear is that the issue of worry is a byproduct of the brokenness of this world. You're, you can't get away from it just by changing your circumstances or by moving or by making more money or having your kids switch schools. Whatever the circumstances are and however it is you change them, you will never completely eliminate worry from your life. There's a deeper spiritual thing going on there. And I think that that's why Jesus takes several opportunities to talk about worry while he was here on this life because he knew that it was an issue for everybody. 
he kind of is like, yeah, I know that worry is a part of the human condition, but he doesn't want worry to hold us back from living these bold and these daring and these generously extravagant lives that God has created us to live. And so we're going to look at one of the teachings that Jesus gives on worry to kind of understand what is the spiritual root of it, what's going on behind the scenes that we need to understand in order to sort of step out of worry into the extravagance that God has called us into. Now, that being said, I want to make a, a little bit of a note um, as we deal about worry from a spiritual perspective. I want to say that if you are somebody that struggles with chronic anxiety, um, you need more than just a sermon in order to deal with that. And because chronic anxiety isn't just a spiritual thing, there are more factors and there are more components going into that. Sometimes there's a medical issue that needs to be addressed or, or there's a chemical imbalance that needs to, to be um, addressed. And so if you're dealing with a debilitating chronic anxiety, I just want to invite you to, to let us know, let me know, pull me aside, and let's have a conversation about that. Because you don't have to go through that alone. There is help. And we have some great counselors that I can recommend for you um, to meet with. And um, we have some folks that also struggle with chronic anxiety that would be willing to walk alongside you. You aren't alone. And we want to help you get um, we want to help you get the help that you need so that you can start heading in the right direction. Now you might not deal with chronic anxiety, but again, like we've said, all of us deal with human anxiety at some level. And this is what Jesus had to say, has to say about it. He says, "And do not set your hearts on what you will eat or drink, and do not worry about it. For the pagans run after." such things. And your father knows that you need them. Now, it's interesting that Jesus's opening thing is like, hey, don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Because honestly, when you're struggling with something, <laughs> the worst thing that you can tell somebody is like, don't worry about it. It'll all work out. It'll be fine. That's the absolute <laughs> don't do that. When somebody does that to me and I'm worried about something and they say, oh, don't worry about it. It'll all work out. Let me tell you what is happening in my brain. My brain is coming up with every reason why you're wrong and why I logically have a legitimate reason to worry, right? And I'm sure your brains do the exact same thing. You justify your worry the second somebody tells you, don't worry. And so Jesus, this is why Jesus doesn't just leave it with that beginning sentence where he says, hey, don't worry about those things. He actually goes into this idea, and the key word here is father. He says, your father knows you need them. See, our parents play a really key role in our lives because there's two things that every child desperately needs from their parents. The first one is they need love. They need sort of a sense of worth and value, that they're important. And the second thing that they need is protection. They need a source that they are safe, that they are going to be okay, that they have a sense of security. And if a child feels loved and protected, that no matter what life throws at them, typically they're, they're going to be okay. They're going to be able to scrape their knees and then get back up and say, I'm loved and I'm protected. Even though it's all subconscious, they're going to say, I'm loved and I'm protected. I can run home to my mom and to my dad. 
And what Jesus is pointing out is the reason that we worry is because we forget that we have a father who loves us, who's the source of our value and our worth, and who protects us, who's the source of our safety and our security. See, Jesus illustrates the way that the Father is the source of our love and our protection in in two ways in this section. And he shows us how much he loves us. He uses this illustration about birds. This is what he says. He says, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no storerooms or barns, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Now, when Jesus is referencing the birds, we have to remember the context that Jesus is talking about. Like, for us who may dwell in more overcrowded populations and areas, we think of scrappy pigeons. Like, that's what I think of. Scrappy pigeons who are fighting over the last napkin so they can eat that. That's not what Jesus experienced. See, Jesus was a country boy. And his audience was all in the country. And so when he talks about the birds of the field, he's talking about these birds who have abundance, who have enough. It doesn't matter how many birds there are, there is enough for them. And Jesus is saying that our heavenly father is going to, if he's going to take care of the birds, how much more secure and loved should we feel that we too will be taken care of, that he's this generous host for the birds? He'll be a generous host for you as well. And then he uses the second illustration to sort of demonstrate the source of our protection, and he talks about the flowers. He says, consider the wild, how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, How much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And what Jesus is talking about is actually the daylilies. They would spring up and sometimes only last a couple of days and then they would die. But he's saying that God wraps even these things that are just here and then gone in glory and splendor. How much more will he wrap you in glory and splendor? Now, in both of these illustrations, Jesus is pointing out that the reason that we worry so much is because you're looking to the things that you ought not to be looking to. You're looking to the things that you're worrying about, whatever that might be, clothes or food or shelter or your job or the future, to make you feel loved and protected. You're looking for money and resources and your abilities or your talents to tell you that you are worthy and valuable and safe and secure. But that is something only your heavenly father can actually provide for you. Only he can give you that deep sense of love and protection that you so desperately crave and long for. See, when we place on something a weight that it was never intended to bear, like asking money or resources or our talents to shoulder the weight of our worth and our value and the weight of making us feel safe and secure, then we will always be anxious about those things. We will always worry about those things because without a doubt, they can't hold that weight. They will always fail. And that's where that worry comes from. 
my, we ordered something from Amazon this past week, and uh, one of my daughters like, was using, it, using the box that the thing came in as a stepping stool. She just like, put the box together, and she climbed on top of it to get something. That box was never intended to carry a child. And so as I'm watching her, I'm worried <laughs> because I'm thinking, that's not going to work. Like, that is not going to work. And yet I wonder if that's what God feels like every time we try to put the weight of our worth and our value and our security on the things in this world. He's like, that's not going to hold. <laughs> You're going to fall. <laughs> No wonder it is that we worry. See, a key part of easing this cycle of worry is actually rethinking about the weight that we should be putting on those things, those resources, that money, our talents, our abilities. What, what is the right expectation for them? If they're not supposed to carry the weight of our worth and our protection, our love and our protection, what are they supposed to carry? I had a mentor one time, and uh, he was an extremely generous person, and he used to always explain that the role of money and gifts and talents and resources with this catchphrase, he would say, it's all a tool. Money, it's a tool. Your gifts and talents, they're a tool. Your resources, it's a tool. Your home, it's a tool. And it may make you think like a tool for what? <laughs> He says that it's not supposed to hold your worth and your value or security. It's a tool that has been given as a gift to you so that you can participate in this mission of heaven coming to earth. It's looking at all that you have been given and saying, all right, if this is a tool to help me participate in this mission, how am I going to use it? How am I going to invest it? How am I going to spend it? How am I going to give it? Sometimes we think that if we get enough tools, enough blessings, enough money, enough talents, enough resources, that somehow we will be able to secure some type of protection and control on the outcomes and pronounce worth and value on ourselves. And for a little while, like sometimes that may work. Like we may be able to stock up enough money to make ourselves feel some sense of security for a while. But then comes the day when like, we lose our job, or the doctor gives us a diagnosis, or our kid makes a really dumb decision, or, or whatever it is. But no matter how many tools or resources or money or gifts that we have gathered, it becomes abundantly clear that we're not in control. And so Jesus reminds us this, that who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you even worry about the rest? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, don't you see that all of your worry, all of your efforts to try to control circumstances by collecting things that you're worried about actually can't add a single hour to your life, can't add a day, can't add a minute, can't add a second so if all of that stuff you're collecting doesn't actually ease your worry, it doesn't actually make you more powerful, why are you looking to it to give you love and protection? And I love this one part where Jesus, like, he says, like, you can't even do that little thing. That's not a little thing, adding an hour to your... But for Jesus, he's like, I can do that little thing. I can add a day to your life. 
I can add an hour. I can add a minute. I can add a second. I can do whatever I want. I am all powerful. Jesus is like, you can't even do this little thing. Those are little things for him because he is God. He's our heavenly father. Now, for some of us, we don't, um, we don't worry because we're trying to control outcomes. For some of us, we worry because we think we know what we need. We think we know how things should go, what we need to happen in order to have the good life or, or to get to a good place. We think that we know better than God what needs to happen, and we certainly don't trust God to get it right. But the reality is, is that like you have no rational reason to believe that you know what you need. Like you don't. Like think about this for a second. Think back to when you were 18. Okay, you're there? Okay. What is the thing, or if you're not 18 yet, like you can do like 14, that's fine. Um, think for a second about what is the, the thing that you thought you needed the most that would like make your life go so well that it would be perfect if only this thing, right? Do you have it in your mind? Okay. How much better would your life have been if you had gotten that? Would it have really been better? Let me tell you mine. I would be married to Adam Levine. <laughs> now, I don't know that my life would suck, but I don't know that my life would be better, right? We think that we know what we need. We think we know what will make our life better. But the reality is, is we don't. And this is why Jesus says in verse 30 that we looked at already at the very beginning, for the pagans run after all such things, the things they think they need. But your heavenly father knows. Jesus is saying that we need to stop thinking that we know better than God. Instead, we need to embrace the reality that God does know. He does know what we need. And we need to embrace the reality that we are just his children and that he is our heavenly father. We need to embrace the reality that through Jesus, we have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. Now, it doesn't matter how terrible your parents were, how awesome they were. All of us actually need to experience firsthand the love and the protection of our heavenly Father. Jesus reminds us that even at their best, our parents are just kind of this like pale reflection of how great and wonderful and awesome our heavenly Father is. And in the chapter before Jesus talks about all this worry, uh, Jesus actually says this other thing where he's talking to this group of dads. And he says this thing. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then know, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit and good gifts to those who ask. 
Now, Jesus isn't saying that this particular group of fathers were evil, right? He says, you, although you were evil, right? He's not saying, you're evil people. That's not his point. He's, he's, his point is actually that he believes that most dads are good guys, but um, you guys, you're, you're messed up just like everybody else. That, that you are good dads, but you too have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's acknowledging that the only dad who is truly good, who always gives good gifts to his kids, is our Heavenly Father. And so he can be trusted to give all the right and perfect gifts to his kids. Now, this doesn't mean, like some people will take this and say like, hey, this means that nothing bad should ever happen to anybody who follows Jesus. And if bad things are happening in your life, then you must not be following Jesus. And that's actually not what this is saying. God doesn't mean to be saying that he would never, that, that no bad will ever come to those who follow him and are his children. And that's why we shouldn't worry. It doesn't mean that we'll always be clothed or have food or never get sick or die. So you don't have to worry. The truth is, is that there are people that are all around the world that aren't clothed and they don't have food and there are flowers that get picked by very young children and get all of their leaves plucked off. And there are birds that run into very clean windows and die upon impact. This world is messed up. And so bad things happen. There are times in our lives where life is going to be unbearably challenging. Our children will choose to do unfathomably, unfathomably, unfathomably destructive things. And the doctor will give us a diagnosis. And the court proceedings will not always be in our favor. And all of that is a result of the first lie that we needed to take and we needed to hoard in order to get the things that were good for us. It's the consequences of that that are still echoing through this whole world. But see, Jesus came to undo the consequences of this lie, to restore all things to the way that they once were, so that we would one day, once again, live in a world where there is no sickness, and there is no pain, and there is no death. And we have to remember that when Jesus tells his disciples, like, hey, guys, don't worry, your father knows. Jesus himself was following this call through a very painful and difficult journey. See, in chapter 12 in the book of Luke, Jesus was actually teaching the disciples as they were on their journey to Jerusalem, as they were on their journey to the very location where Jesus would submit himself to death on a cross. This journey to death wasn't easy, and it wasn't painless, and it certainly was filled with tons of things to worry about. And yet this journey was a part of this extravagant gift of himself that he was giving to all of the people that he loved. You and me. So God is not only the generous host of this abundant world, but when sin entered the world, he moved heaven and earth so that he could become our heavenly father through Jesus Christ. 
In the middle of this worrisome world, he is restoring the party to its original joy. So we will not be alone. And even in this moment, you do not have to be alone. Jesus came so that we would have this great and all-powerful Father who loves us and gave himself for us. Now, it's when you realize that you are loved and valued and provided for by the Heavenly Father that you can actually move from a posture of worry to a posture of trust. And it's only in this posture of trust that you can begin to live this extravagant call that God has on our lives. He knows what you need. He loves you beyond measure. He cares for you with an unstoppable, never giving up, always and forever love. And he sits on the throne where he will reign forever. And so my question for you today is, what does it look like for you to move from a posture of worry to a posture of trust and surrender? Now, I'll be honest, as um, somebody who is on this journey with you, it's a slow one. And it happens step by step. I think that sometimes we get these stories in our head that like surrendering to God is like this instantaneous thing. And sometimes God does work that way and it happens in the blink of an eye and in a moment. But I, my journey is actually one of this slow, okay, I'll trust you with this. And I'll trust you with this. And I'll trust you with this. And there's this prayer that I've been praying for the past 18 months that has actually really helped me identify the places where I have struggled to trust, where I am able to identify the places where I'm still fighting for control and to be able to name them and then offer them to God as, okay, here's, here's your peace. And here, here's your peace. And I wanted to teach it to you today, if you're willing. So what I want you to do is to stand with me. Now, I don't know how you feel about moving your body. <laughs> but for me, I am not a silent prayer that can just sit or kneel and silently actually stay focused on anything. It doesn't work for me. And so instead, this prayer has been helpful because it's created this way for me to use my body in order to focus my prayer. And so this is what I want you to do. There's, there's sort of three steps to this prayer. There's three postures to this prayer. And so the first thing I want you to do is I want you to hold up your fists like you're going to fight someone. Some of you are better at this than others. <laughs> and so this is my prayer. Pray with me. Father God, you don't have to pray out loud. You can just do it inside your head. <laughs> Father God, I recognize that I am trying to fight for the things that I feel like I need. Whether it's money or resources or talent or getting ahead in a job, I am fighting to make it happen in my own strength and my own power. I'm pretending that I know what I need and I need to have the control. Now I want you to open up your hands in a posture of surrender. Just hold them up over your head. And so, Father, instead, I choose to surrender. 
I choose to surrender to you. I am not God. I am not in control. I do not know the right thing that I need. And so I surrender to you as my heavenly father. I surrender to you as your child. Would you guide me? Would you care for me? Would you love me? All right, now go ahead and and hold your your fists as if you're clenching something, you're grabbing something. Father, I enter into this world and I want to hold on to everything that that I can. (laughs) I'm scared. And I think that if I don't hold this thing, this money, this talent, this resource, whatever it is, that, that I'll miss out and I won't have enough. And so I recognize that in this area of my life, I'm I'm just holding on. (laughs) Now open your hands. But you call us to live this life of generosity, this open-fisted living, where we can freely receive from you and also freely give. And so, Father God, this is what I'm trying to do. This is how I'm trying to live my days. And so will you remind me that I can trust you, that you will provide, and I don't have to hoard it, and I don't have to hold on to it, but that you are the generous host, and this is an abundant world. All right, now I want you to cross your arms. And God, I am so cynical about the world. I think that if I give to it, they'll misuse it. I think that if I am generous, they'll take advantage of me. And so sometimes I just want nothing to do with any of them and nothing to do with no one. All right, now open your arms in the sign of the cross. And yet you send us forth as you sent your son. And he died for us in a way that he had no guarantee that that I would choose him, that you would choose him, that any of us would choose to follow him. And yet he surrendered his life in mission for you and for me. And so, Father God, I ask that you would send me forth in the same posture and the same mission that Christ went and he came and gave his life extravagantly and generously for me. And so, Father God, I want to live in the same way. I want to follow after Christ. I want to pursue your mission. I want to be a part of this mission to redeem and restore the whole world. So, Father God, would you lead me in that? And, Lord, we pray all of these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, you can put